and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, your co-host and moderator, and joining me on the Hitting Play hotline is a returning guest, our go-to Star Wars expert, Paul. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Scott. Great to be with you tonight. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for joining us. Well, Paul, in 1977, Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker uttered a sentence of seemingly little consequence. A throwaway line simply meant to tell the audience that the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi had an extensive history with Luke's then-unidentified father. A small line of dialogue that would have far-reaching and arguably devastating consequences for a beloved film franchise. One small question typed on a script page that would not have any further meaning for a quarter of a century. Do you know what it is, Paul? Something about fighting in the Clone Wars. You got it. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes, for 25 years, audiences were left to wonder, if they even cared, what these Clone Wars were all about, what they looked like, and what Obi-Wan and Luke's father did in them. Then, in 2002, George Lucas finally showed us. And we found out that the Clone Wars were all about wooden acting in front of green screen as CGI nonsense just flies across the frame. (laughs) It was just another disappointing installment in the lackluster Star Wars prequel trilogy. But, the Clone Wars we're discussing today were not directed by George Lucas, but by Gennady Tartakovsky, a very skilled animator whose interpretation of Lucas's tale of clones fighting droids gave us what just might be the best thing to come out of the prequels, the 2003 Clone Wars animated series. What other work has that director done in the animated field? He's done quite a bit. Uh, If you're familiar with a lot of the Cartoon Network shows from the 2000s, like Uh, The Powerpuff Girls he worked on, Dexter's Laboratory, but probably most famously Samurai Jack. And it had a very similar style to these Clone Wars cartoons. The characters were very flat and angular, but the style, the composition, the animation, just as beautiful as it is in these Clone Wars shorts. Yeah, I thought the cartoons looked pretty nice. Um, I didn't have any complaints about it. Of course, the only other... Star Wars-based cartoon that I've watched in the last 10 years probably was the one that uh, was included with the holiday special that we reviewed <laughs> a couple months ago. So yes, this, this is definitely a step up from that. Yes, a huge step. And, and if you haven't heard that, uh, please go back. It's in our archives. We talked at length about the Star Wars holiday special. And now just to clarify, the Clone Wars series that we're talking about today is not the CGI animated series that ran for seven seasons. These are the ones that aired on the Cartoon Network and online from November 7th, 2003 to March 25th, 2005. And if you want to follow along, they were actually released on DVD. Uh, Before we recorded, I looked on Amazon to see what they were going for, and it's like $42 each. But if you want to find them used, they're way cheaper, and do yourself a favor and pick these up if you haven't seen them. Now these cartoon shorts are actually referred to as a micro-series by some. They ran in three installments. There was seasons one and two, which were comprised of 20 episodes of three minutes each. 
and season three finished with five episodes of 15 minutes each. So for this episode of Hitting Play, we watched the entire first and second seasons. That's chapters 1 through 20. And hopefully sometime in the future, we'll watch and review season 3. Before we get started um, in actually talking about the show itself, I just wanted to talk a little bit about how I think George Lucas ruined the Clone Wars for many <laughs> of us. When the Clone Wars were first, as you mentioned, mentioned in A New Hope, you know, we didn't think much of it, probably, other than there were clones in it. Yeah. Whether they were on the good side of the war or the bad side, tough to say, probably considering the fact that Obi-Wan and Anakin fought in the Clone Wars. You'd kind of think they were fighting against the clones, but not necessarily. And as we see, that wasn't the case at all, according to Lucas. But my problem with the Clone Wars is it's droids versus clones. So you can't emotionally attach yourself to either side. Yeah. One is one is all robots, which mean nothing. They just keep producing them on conveyor belts in factories and pumping them out there. And the other side is a bunch of men cloned from a bounty hunter. These men were only produced to be warriors. They don't have families. They don't have friends outside their units. So no one's going to miss them when they're gone. And, you know, it's hard to really feel bad when you see clones fall in the line of duty. It's like, oh, well, there's another thousand just like him. So Yeah, completely and, expendable. Right. And then, of course, you also have the Jedi fighting along with the clones. But for the most part... These Jedi that you see fighting, you have no idea who they are. You don't know their name, anything about them. So then again, you know, looking at Attack of the Clones and the big battle at the end of that on Geonosis that started the Clone Wars, um, all these Jedi show up out of nowhere. And you're supposed to care about these people that are waving blue and green lightsabers just because... They're waving blue and green lightsabers, but that's not how it works. You, you just feel disconnected from the whole thing. And then, you know, there's mention of the separatists and the Trade Federation and the banking colony. It's like, who? What? No. <laughs> it's just all confusing and, you know, hard to keep track of who's fighting for what reason. I just really don't like what Lucas has done in general to the whole prequels and story leading up to episodes four, five, and six. Agreed. And it should be noted, too, while Gennady Tartakovsky did direct these episodes, the writing credit goes to George Lucas. So we do have a lot of banking clan, separatist, trade federation, a lot of stuff that's really pointless in the grand scheme of the trilogy because we find out that these two sides were pawns pitted against each other. They were all puppets and Darth Sidious slash Chancellor Palpatine's little play. And I don't think it mattered who won what battles or anything. It was all going to eventually come to the outcome of him, you know, overthrowing the Senate and becoming the Emperor. So, again, it, you watch this and think none of this really matters. <laughs> what an endorsement we're giving this thing as we are about to break the whole thing down. <laughs> but, but they are 
decent cartoons, and I, I did thoroughly enjoy the uh, 69 or 70 minutes of watching seasons one and two. Yeah, it just it, it's awesome, and it really shows you how great of a job they did on this, that as much as we hate the prequels and the material therein, it, it's just a, such an enjoyable watch and one of my favorite cartoons of all time. All right, so let's get right into these episodes. I'll break them down by chapter as we go along just to keep track. Now, chapter one opens with some exposition for us. We start with a distant shot of Yoda riding on the back of a of a goat-like tauntaun creature. I believe it's called a kibak. As he goes across this barren landscape, and uh, he stands up, he ignites his lightsaber, he's ready to go into battle, and the music swells, and behind him we see other Jedis as well as this entire clone army storm in behind him. And across from him... We see this army of battle droids and other machines of the Separatists or the Trade Federation firing back. As this battle sequence continues, we get a, a voiceover from Yoda, and he says, I'm not going to do the voice. <laughs> like fire, across the galaxy, the Clone Wars spread. Then we see fleets and army units being led by members of the Jedi Council that we have probably become familiar with from the previous two movies, including a guy named Sacy Tin. He's the Jedi with the two horns, one of which is broken. Then Yoda continues, In league with the wicked Count Dooku, more and more planets slip. We then see the character of Count Dooku shaking hands with some squid-like creatures that we'll see a little later. And he's, you know, it's like standing on this ocean cliff with an army of these creatures holding tridents standing behind him. So we get the sense that he's bringing more and more of these separatists into his side, into the Trade Federation side. The montage continues with battles being fought in various parts of the galaxy. Uh, we see a snowy landscape, a desert-like planet, and various Jedis doing their part to fight the Separatists. And we see clips, some clips of their various episodes throughout the series thrown in there as well. And there's some really beautiful scenes in just in this opening part. Yeah, it was a pretty cool opening to the, uh, the cartoons and an introduction to... Uh wet everyone's appetite for what was coming. There's this very striking image that I like. It's these three clone troopers firing in the rain at night, and they're draped in cloth, and they're only illuminated by their blue laser fire. Really beautifully done. And we see Obi-Wan and Anakin swoop down from a carrier ship and carve up some droids with their lightsabers. And Yoda continues in his voiceover, Against this threat upon the Jedi Knights falls the duty to lead the newly formed Army of the Republic. And as the heat of war grows, so too grows the prowess of one most gifted student of the Force. And this scene finishes with Anakin holding his lightsaber at the ready, and we see his menacing face illuminated by the blue glow of the lightsaber. And his checkmark eyebrows. <laughs> yes, they, they all have a very distinct, like I said, angular look to them, and that's kind of... Tartakovsky's signature style, and I think it works for this show. It, it, um, you're not going to find a realistic depiction of anything, but it works. So the episode really begins here we, when we cut to a scene on the planet of Coruscant where Yoda, Obi-Wan, and Anakin are speaking to Chancellor Palpatine about the growing threat of the banking clan who has hidden factories and amassed a large droid army on the planet Munalist. They agree that Obi-Wan should lead the charge to preemptively attack the banking clan on Munalist, and Palpatine suggests that Anakin join him. And despite Obi-Wan's hesitance, they eventually agree. 
And in our next scene, we see this large army of clone troopers marching in formation, and we hear that very familiar Empire March beginning to play. I was surprised that they used that music here. I think it's the only time we get that this early in the prequels. Yeah, I didn't really notice that, to be honest with you. I mean, we all know those are the precursors to the stormtroopers, but uh, a nice little nod to that. We cut back to see huge units of clone troopers along with all kinds of space vehicles and machines of war being made at the ready under Obi-Wan's supervision. And this is actually the first time that these clone fighter ships are seen in the Star Wars universe. As we know, in Episode 3, we're going to see a lot of ships flying around. Anakin approaches his starship, which is being serviced by R2-D2 with C-3PO nearby. And uh, after rudely throwing his robe onto C-3PO, he gets in his starship and joins the departing spaceship fleet, stopping only briefly to give one final goodbye to Padme, his secret wife. Yeah, I thought that was a jerk thing for him to do. Throwing <laughs> <laughs> his robe like that. The wind catches it. It uh, flies in C-3PO's face and almost knocks him over the landing platform. And he built that thing for his mother. <laughs> I was thinking, aren't you going to need that robe wherever you're going? Or, you know, might want to store it in the compartment in the uh, Jedi Starfighter for your journey. Yeah, why not? I, I also, I was trying to remember back, I guess it is accurate that um, R2 was not his droid in his starship. I believe R2 was Obi-Wan's droid in his travels uh, in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. But then at some point between Episodes 2 and 3, R2 becomes Anakin's droid because at the beginning of Episode 3, that huge space battle over Coruscant, he has R2 flying with him. All right, so in Chapter 2, in Deep Space, we see this fleet of Republic cruisers and we know them to be the precursor to the Empire Star Destroyers, and Obi-Wan is briefing the ARC Troopers, and this is a very elite unit of clone trooper. I believe they're introduced here for the first time. We next see Obi-Wan and Anakin have a discussion as Anakin's working on his ship. More of that conflict between them, that they're friends, and but there's a little bit of friction there as Obi-Wan is telling him that the concern is not his skills, but his maturity. But because Palpatine gave the orders that he's there, you know, Obi-Wan mockingly addresses Anakin as a commander as he walks away. Yeah, I have a couple notes from what, what you've uh, mentioned so far from this episode or this chapter. First of all, the ARC troopers, like you said, Obi-Wan refers to them as the best, the elite. Yeah. And my question is why? <laughs> what makes them the best, the elite? I mean, they're clones, so they're just like everyone else. The only thing that could be different is if they have better gear, better weapons, or they've had more specialized training. But why not make that training available to everyone since they're all the same person, they all have the same skill set. Right, I was wondering that myself as I watched this. Yeah. So there's that. And then uh, Obi-Wan's conversation with Anakin, just more of that whining from Anakin. You know, <laughs> I don't know who the voice actor was for Anakin, but... Like, they did a good job of giving him no emotion at all, just like in the movies. <laughs> He's just like, I am ready, Master. I don't know why you can't see it. You know, and I'm just like, oh boy, here we go again. Yes, there's some good voice actors in here. Uh, one especially we should mention is Anthony Daniels reprising his role as C-3PO. He's the only one from the movies to actually do his voice here. 
Yeah, good sound alike. And, and to your point, you know, they, they, they can only work with the material they were given, and so... Episode 2 gave some pretty bland line readings, and unfortunately, they kind of have to keep pace with that and deliver the lines as they would, pretty cold and unemotional. That is true. <laughs> so approaching the planet Munalist, the Republic ships are met with this huge wave of Geonosian ships coming from what's called IG space stations. They're like these big green cylinders hanging over the planet, and we get this huge space battle. Yeah, it's like with the cartoon, it's so easy to just uh, kind of be over the top with everything. And there's countless ships on both sides and countless troops on the ground. Just everything is very large scale. And we, we see here like a very nice use of 3D modeling along with the 2D animation. And it's pretty clean and seamless. It's similar to what we've seen being used in Futurama where these complex spaceships, they're very hard to animate in a traditional 2D animation style. So it's just easier to have them 3D model these ships and place them in the frame and, and animate them that way. It's, it's a lot smoother. They, the ships stay on model. And with, you know, thick lines, they really don't distract you that much. Like, you can tell they're, they're three-dimensional rather than two-dimensional, but it's not so much that they look like they're flying out of a Pixar movie all of a sudden. Yeah, I thought the ships looked good. So carrier ships full of troopers, they're deployed to the planet's surface. As they approach a major city, they begin to be fired upon and they take evasive action. So we see the clone troopers get out as a wave of battle droids approach, and we also now have a huge land battle. Meanwhile, these ARC troopers, they fly into the city, and the city, how would you describe this city, Paul? A lot of tall towers. This is the planet of the banking clan, and... It looked like a bunch of banking-style buildings, you know, like a financial district or something. Yeah, like Greek temples, like how you imagine a bank with columns, white marble, and very uh, light green, almost the color of money. So as they're, they're flying in, we, there's one battle droid, and he's able to shoot down the carrier, and now this elite unit of troopers are crash-landed here in the middle of the city, and they get out on foot. And they're led by this clone trooper with red accents on his armor. And that's where the episode leaves off. So in Chapter 3, we see these troopers leaving the carrier ship. And they're immediately besieged by battle droids all around them, sniping them from the surrounding buildings. More great action animation here. Did you notice uh, during this whole battle sequence that no words were uttered by any of the clone troopers? Yeah, it's all hand signals. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Like, obviously, we know that uh, soldiers will do that when they're trying to be stealthy and sneaking up on a target or something. But here, they crash-landed in the middle of the city. They're surrounded by battle droids firing upon them. And rather than communicate to each other by voice, the commander is doing all these hand signals to tell his troops what to do. I just kind of thought it was... A little unrealistic and pointless, but the action was cool. Yeah. Tartakovsky in the director's commentary mentions in this scene that he wanted the hand signals like that so you could really get a sense that this is a military unit. But you would think, like you said, they could probably communicate through a comm in their helmets or something. So the battle droids don't have the upper hand for long because the clone troopers seem to have a great array of technology and they just fire into all the surrounding buildings, which I guess are empty except for the battle droids. 
and the coast is soon clear, and there's a lot of skilled fighting along the way. Just, it's hard to describe action animation accurately, but that it's something definitely worth seeing. They approach this one giant spire, I guess it is. It's a command center, and they contact Obi-Wan. They proceed with their mission. They take it over, and that's the end of this chapter. In chapter four, we get a voiceover of Yoda, and he, he says, Troubled is the planet of Mon Calamari. Its races have divided. The droid army of the Quarren Isolation League moves against the Calamari Council. Alone, the Calamari are no match. Intervene, we must. Yeah, we see here uh, that there's at least two races that live on uh, Mon Calamari. There's, of course, the race we're used to seeing, the kind that Admiral Akbar is in uh, Return of the Jedi. And then there's another race that looks a little more squid-like. I think they have some tentacles hanging down from the bottom of their face, their chin area. And we see these two, uh, the squid-like ones, are uh, wanting the ones that we saw at the beginning of Chapter 1 that are in league with Count Dooku. And the ones, the race that resembles Admiral Akbar. They are, I believe they call them the Council, but they're the ones that are fighting to remain uh, a part of the Republic. Yeah, they're the Calamari Council. I guess they're, are they Calamari? Is that their race? Yeah, I'm not sure what the the name of the race. I know the planet is Mon Calamari, so I don't know if one race is actually called Calamari and one race is called something else. I, I actually seem to remember seeing a character that looked like the other race, perhaps in the original trilogy. I don't know if it might have been, it might have been a character in Jabba's Palace. I uh, might have a collectible card of them, but I didn't dig it up in time to uh, do this podcast. <laughs> so basically, fish versus squid is pretty much this chapter. It made, it made me hungry for some seafood, I'll tell you that. <laughs> And that's a, that's another thing I was going to mention. It's just calamari. It's so stupid. But Lucas wrote this so long ago that they just have to work with the material given. So there's a race of aquatic creatures, and guess what? They're named after Italian fried squid. Calamari. Ha ha ha. And the, the fighting under the water uh, reminded me a little of the Little Mermaid. Like I was ready to see King Triton show up or something. <laughs> Here, in this chapter, we get... Kit Fisto, he's the green-skinned Jedi that has dark eyes and tentacles coming from his head like dreadlocks. He's in the the prequel movies as well. He's an aquatic creature, and he's, I guess, best suited to help neutralize this threat. And so we see this scene where Yoda, you know, addresses him, tells him what his mission is. And it's basically, Kit Fisto is like the Aquaman of the Star Wars universe. And he really needs an underwater setting to show off his skills. Fortunately for him, in this episode of the cartoon, we get it. Yeah, it was a pretty cool undersea battle. We see some different sea creatures that are being used as mounts for the uh, different natives of the planet. Pretty neat action. We see that a lightsaber will work underwater. Yeah, that was cool. He wields a green lightsaber, I believe it was. Yep. I don't want to jump ahead here, but this big gun appears on the bottom of the ocean and starts taking out some of the Republic ships. Fisto takes it down with a giant air bubble. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting use of force powers here, almost like uh, Ryu from Street Fighter creating this ball. 
and it's basically the absence of water. It's like this force bubble, like you said, and he propels that forward with enough force to break through metal. Yeah, the thing had like three, went through three parts of the uh, gun and rendered it useless, and then uh, the calamari came in with their sea creatures and pushed it down a giant hole in the planet. Another point mentioned by Tartakovsky here is he wanted really to make it known like that the good guys, the calamari fish-like creatures, they have more of an organic fleet, I guess you could say. They're, they're like these eel creatures, whereas the, the other guys, the Quarren and the droids, they have more machines that they use. This, this giant gun is lobster-like, but it's, they're, they're all metal machines. So you have the organic versus the inorganic here. And eventually, they push that gun into, like, this volcanic vent. And this huge explosion takes place as it's destroyed. And we get, at the very end of this chapter, a big grin on Kit Fisto's face. Harkening back to his big grin in Episode 2. In Chapter 5, we are back in space over the planet Munalist. And we see Anakin and the clone troopers are still in the midst of this giant space battle. On the surface of the planet, the Republic is advancing upon this major city, besieging it. Inside of one of the buildings, the Separatists and Trade Federation officials are worried, and they have this giant red hologram of the city that they're intently viewing. It's giving them live updates of what's happening in this battle. And they're seeing their defenses just rapidly break down. So in response, one of the banking clan leaders, I believe his name is San Hill, he sends someone appointed to them by Count Dooku, and this is the mysterious armored man named Dirge. H how would you describe Dirge? Um, I wasn't quite sure what to think of this character. I didn't know if he was, you know, human. Uh, he's covered in armor. I didn't know if he was just another droid. I thought his head and headpiece reminded me of an Egyptian pharaoh. And then he had some kind of crest on his chest. At that point, I didn't know what to think of him. Yeah, and I believe this is the first appearance and in this series. It's his only appearance. And he was created just for this show. So Lucas gave them a little leeway as to what characters they could use and gave them free reign to create some new characters as well. Almost like, like you said, uh, that Egyptian look, but is also... Uh, gray metal and kind of a medieval look to him as well. Yeah, especially when we uh, see what the main way he fights is definitely harkens back to medieval times. Yeah, he. we immediately then cut to the scene where he's leading this unit of IG-88 looking droids. And uh, IG-88, of course, is the, the bounty hunter that we get a very brief glimpse of in Empire Strikes Back. Very tall, skinny, black robot. And uh, these droids are actually called IG Lancer droids. So, somewhat related in their manufacturer to IG-88, the bounty hunter. And they're all on this fleet of uh, speeder bikes, holding lances. They, they swoop into action, and more great animation here as they swiftly take out many of the advancing clone troopers. At this point in the battle, the Republic seems to have the upper hand, but now Dirge comes out with his crew and they kind of level the playing field. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they fight in that way. I, I guess uh, the lances were electrified, it seems. They were able to pierce armor and uh, easily cut through and destroy enemy ships and different things. So it was pretty interesting. 
place in this battle. Yeah. And did you notice what Dirge's bike looked like? I did not. The front of it is almost like a skull of some creature. So they really want to give you the image of this motorcycle gang being led by this very fearsome leader. In Chapter 6, we immediately cut to a scene on the planet Rat Attack, where many different species of aliens are battling in this underground arena as spectators look on. Yeah, it was kind of like a uh, gladiator arena that was located underground. It almost uh, seemed to me like it was like a, a testing pit or something, like they were pitting all these different creatures against one another to see who would uh, who would win out, who was the strongest, and then maybe they would uh, be used uh, in the war or something. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, and we see all kinds of different creatures. Some we're familiar with from the trilogy. I think there's a Gamorrean guard that from Jabba's palace is in there. Mm-hmm. It also looks like there's an interrogation droid, like the kind that was threatened to be used on Leia? I didn't notice that. Some are old characters, but Tartakovsky mentioned that some were new characters that they were allowed to create for this scene as well. So we have a mix of the old and the new all battling together. All kinds of crazy creatures. Now Count Dooku arrives, and he's told that everything's been arranged for him, and he takes his spot in a spectator's box. Next to him is this cloaked individual. He's talking to this person, he's telling them that, you know, they make an excellent spy, but that's not really what he's looking for. So immediately this person jumps down into the midst of this gladiatorial arena, and she removes her cloak. And we see that it's this bald woman with gray skin, and this is the character Asajj Ventress. I had remembered seeing her before when I originally watched this series years ago recalled that she uh, wielded double lightsabers and uh, was wanting to become a member of the Sith. So she's trying to prove herself to Dooku here. We, that's what we get the sense of anyway. And she begins to fight, and we can see in her fight that she has been trained in the dark side of the forest. She can use the forest to drop down giant boulders from the ceiling. I don't know if that's legal in that fight. I guess so. There's no refs in there. No holds barred. <laughs> she quickly defeats all of the large creatures and Dooku applauds. Also notable here is that she's using lightsabers that are green and blue. Dual lightsabers, as Paul mentioned. Not really ones that the Sith use, because we know that they obviously use red. I looked into her backstory, and I guess she was originally a Padawan learner of a Jedi Master. So that might be where these original lightsabers come from. That's what she uses to start off. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. So chapter 7 begins as Ventress boldly proclaims herself to be a Sith, but Dooku disagrees, saying that she still has fear in her, and, you know, that's something that a Sith does not have. For some reason, she decides to call him a foolish old man with no knowledge of the dark side, and he replies with, Indeed and shocks her with force lightning from his hands. I was kind of surprised by Count Dooku's statement that Sith do not have fear, because I thought that was, according to Yoda, the first step that leads to the dark side. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Yeah, that's right. So, but I guess if you're a member of the Sith, then you learn how to control that fear. I don't know. Or you don't want to admit that you have it. (laughs) They're a very insecure bunch. 
So the scene cuts from her being electrocuted to her waking up on a bed in a different place, not knowing what happened. She walks across this large empty room to find two lightsabers, these were the ones that she used to defeat the warriors, sitting on a tray on a desk. And she walks over to retrieve them, but then Dooku sneaks up on her and attacks, and the two begin to duel. And we get, I think, our first real lightsaber duel here. Yeah, and it's pretty easy to tell that although she does have skill, uh, she's no match for Count Dooku. Yeah, he takes care of her pretty easily, and he could kill her if he wants. He holds the lightsaber right to her throat, and she kind of just tells him, you know, get it over with, but that's not what they had in store for her. He has much bigger plans, and just then we see this projection of a very impressed Darth Sidious upon a mechanical pedestal, kind of creeping down the stairs. We saw this technology, I believe, in episode two, where uh, a hologram on a moving platform can crawl around, and so you can talk to somebody while you're on the go. I don't know if you noticed uh, with Sidious's hologram here, but his teeth are really bad. <laughs> yes. Looks like, I don't know if he's had some gingivitis, he doesn't brush very well, but it was kind of funny because that made me go back and look at the one time that the Chancellor appears in this season, and that was, of course, in Chapter 1 when he's talking to Obi-Wan and Anakin and Yoda, and he has very nice teeth in that scene. So I'm wondering which are his real teeth and which are the denture. That's funny, yeah. Well, I guess maybe they don't want to make the reveal obvious in the Clone Wars cartoon. To the kids, anyway, because it's something we all knew. Yeah, it's a pretty dead giveaway when we know that the Emperor's name was Palpatine, and we know that the Chancellor's name is Palpatine. <laughs> Unless he has an evil twin. Please, we're enough clones. <laughs> so Sidious is very impressed, says that Ventress is going to be quite useful to them, and she's given her mission to track down and eliminate Anakin Skywalker. And to help her, Dooku presents her with a gift, and she gets her two custom lightsabers with red blades, and as we know, that's the signature weapon of the Sith, and she departs. I don't know if you noticed, Scott, but the lightsabers that uh, Count Dooku gives to her, the new red ones, they actually have curved hilts, yeah. uh, similar to the one that he uses, so I just kind of thought that was interesting that he prefers that style she was using straight hilted blue and green lightsabers but now she has two curved hilted red lightsabers oh, okay huh yeah i didn't even make that connection so in chapter eight we cut back to the planet munalist in Durginus forces they're significantly weakening the republic army at this point and obi-wan prepares his clone trooper unit to go in and fight them and we kind of get this speeder bike battle it's kind of cool yeah more jousting yeah, exactly. And uh, I thought it was kind of funny that for this battle, we now see Obi-Wan donning the armor and helmet of a clone trooper. I didn't think Jedi ever wore armor or helmets like that. I don't think we see them using such things at any other point, at least in seasons one and two, or in the movies. So that was interesting to me to see that. The only way we could tell him apart was it wasn't necessarily his robes, but there was brown cloth, almost like a cape or something, trailing behind him as he rode on the speeder bike. Yeah, he was the lead guy, and when his helmet gets knocked off, that was the, the big reveal, that was Obi-Wan. And we probably, yeah, don't get to see a Jedi in the Stormtrooper or Trooper armor until Luke goes in to try to rescue Princess Leia in Episode Four. Yeah, just like we know how 
Jedi feel about blasters being an uncivilized weapon. It just seems kind of uh, a mess that they would take advantage of, of that and not just rely on, on the Force to be their protection. So I just kind of raised an eyebrow at all that, but it was still pretty cool. Yeah, mo- most likely an artistic choice above anything else. Eventually, the two forces dwindle each other down until it's just Obi-Wan and Dirge fighting. And Obi-Wan stabs Dirge through the chest with his lightsaber. And they kind of pause. And you, you think Dirge is just going to like fall over dead. But he begins to laugh. And the two continue to fight. So we know that something's weird about this guy. You know, he's not, uh, he's not like a battle droid. And you wonder if, if he is some sort of humanoid creature. Because he would die if that was the case. So you, you wonder what he actually is. Yeah, I was waiting to see more from this character to find out exactly what was underneath the armor. And we get a little glimpse because Obi-Wan slices off Dirge's arm and then he comes across and slices him through the waist. So you pretty much figure this guy's dead. And Obi-Wan leaves to assist the troopers elsewhere. And as he does, the camera pans over to his severed limbs and we see that they actually are wriggling with tendons and sinew and they're beginning to reattach. So this, this fight with this guy is not over. So in Chapter 9, Obi-Wan rejoins the clone troopers, and he tells the commander that it's time to end the battle. They descend upon the Trade Federation, or the Separatists, in their control room, and they're looking upon this hologram projection, knowing their defeat is imminent. One member of the banking clan begs for mercy, and just when it seems that everything is over, just then the newly reformed dirge jetpacks through the window, and they begin to fight him again. When uh, Obi-Wan went to rejoin the troops, I believe they were on the top of a building, and he used a speeder bike to get most of the way up the building. Yeah. Uh, That must be a pretty powerful speeder bike to to fly vertically for such a long distance, and and then he just uh, leapt off of it and used the force to jump the rest of the way. Many times throughout these, we see the Jedi doing some pretty amazing feats when it comes to uh, leaping and, and different things like that. It's almost like they can fly around at will uh, because of their force powers. Yeah, pretty much. So in the midst of this battle with Dirge, everybody's just firing upon him and they're <laughs> just going crazy with lasers and cannons and you pretty much presume he's dead. And there's this column of smoke. But emerging from this column is these long, sinewy arms and legs of Dirge whose armor was blown off. And now in this form, he's like... I don't know, how would you describe him, Paul? Um, like a big pile of spaghetti. Yeah, exactly. It's like muscle tissue and veins. Of course, it's it's not graphic because this is obviously a children's cartoon and everything is stylized. But if you can just picture pink and purple, like Paul said, spaghetti, all moving around and he can stretch and he grabs hold of Obi-Wan. He actually puts Obi-Wan into his body, consuming him and trapping him inside as he continues to fight. Really weird, something we've never seen in the Star Wars universe before. Yeah, and then while Obi-Wan is inside the creature, one of the troopers shoots basically a a very powerful taser at Dirge and electrocutes him, and I'm thinking, uh... Aren't you electrocuting your commander, too? <laughs> yeah, not not too bright. <laughs> but then Obi-Wan uh, uses the Force and explodes through Dirge and sends pieces of him everywhere. And I think he has some kind of line like, uh, looks like I've made a mess or something like that. 
Yeah. Yeah, so now now after this, the Bankin clan surrenders. They're being marched out. Obi-Wan just kind of holds Dirge's helmet looking at it. And as he does, now we see these little pools of liquid, the pink and purple liquid that once made up Dirge's body start to slither away, kind of leading us to believe that even something that devastating is not enough to kill him. Now in Chapter 10, we're back in space above the, the planet, and the Republic, led by Anakin, is having very significant success against the Geonosian ships. And there's just more beautiful animation here. Uh, Anakin's maneuvering around and chases these droid ships into a much larger installation, and great space battle choreography in this chapter. Yeah, I like the part where um, he had, like, hundreds of ships on his tail, and he was approaching one of the Republic cruisers, I believe, and he told his squadron to shoot all their missiles across the bow of the ship. And they were like, but there's nothing there. And he's like, just do it. And sure enough, he timed it just right. He makes it through the stream of missiles, but none of the fighters that were following him do. They all get trapped in the explosion. Yeah, it's very cool. And, you know, obviously, Obi-Wan told Luke, your father was a skilled pilot, so that is the case. I'm just glad he didn't say, now this is pod race. <laughs> or, I'll try spinning. That's a good trick. Annie, that's so wizard. <laughs> now, just when Anakin thinks that he has this whole thing wrapped up, he loses his entire blue squadron in a matter of seconds. There's this unknown ship that begins to attack, and it's called a Geonosian Fanblade Starfighter. Anakin tells the clone troopers to continue and says that this rogue fighter is his to take on. Yeah, and then uh, the space battle turns into a atmospheric dogfight. He's chasing that ship through the city. Obi-Wan sees what's going on and he radios Anakin to find out what's up. Yes, and this is chapter 11 as we get this duel. And they, they keep thinking, like, is this a droid? And Anakin realizes he can sense that it's not. And Obi-Wan can sense too. And it's pretty funny, at one point, Anakin catches the ship in his sights, and he says, I have you now. And it's a, a nice nod to what he'll be saying in the future. I have you now. <laughs> what? So as this mysterious ship flees, Anakin is going after it everywhere, and, and Obi-Wan is scolding him, telling him he's supposed to be leading the Republic squadrons out in space. You know, he shouldn't be here on the planet chasing one ship. But the rebellious Anakin tells him it's under control, and... He can sense that the Force is with the pilot, so that kind of intrigues him. Now it's here that we see that the pilot of this mystery ship is none other than Asajj Ventress, the female Sith that's been commissioned to hunt him down and eliminate him, as we all probably suspected. Obi-Wan knows also that something's wrong, but it's just, he said he needs to let it go, because it's obviously baiting him. Ventress goes into hyperspace, Anakin defies Obi-Wan's orders, goes right after her, but Obi-Wan sends a unit of clone troopers to go in after him to assist him if he needs help. And this chapter finishes with a close-up of Obi-Wan's face as he says his famous catchphrase, I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> Alright, now we go into chapters 12 and 13, and these are my absolute favorite chapters of the series. I don't know how you feel about this, Paul. Yeah, I thought the uh, goings-on, I'm assuming we're on the planet of down to because that's uh, in Chapter 1 where they said Mace Windu was fighting, and we get our first look at the animated Mace Windu in action. Yeah, it starts with a, I guess he's a, a young farm boy here. His name is actually Paxi Silo, 
He was given a name, although it's not used here. And he's surprised to see this huge battle taking place in the valley below his homestead. And as Paul mentioned, it's a Republic charge being led by Mace Windu. And he's just using his skills with a lightsaber. He's defeating countless battle droids and super battle droids effortlessly. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. This is another thing that I have a problem with when it comes to the Clone Wars. And that is that the normal droids, fighting droids that we see, the Trade Federation battle droids, the uh, destroyer droids, I'm not sure what the other ones are called that have the really fast laser cannons in their arms. But none of them are any match when there's a Jedi around. They can all just be sliced up with the lightsaber, force pushed around, and it really takes any kind of drama out of it. Like, you're not worried at all about the Jedi because they can handle themselves against these countless numbers of droids. Now, when you have a unique character like Dirge or Ventress or uh, someone like that, that's where the real intrigue is. But against all these battle droids, no contest. Yeah, and like you said, there's no human interest because you're not really dealing with real people. Certainly no contest in these chapters because Mace Windu just destroys droids left and right. But what is interesting about this battle is that there's a giant ship that looms above them and it, and it has this huge metallic piston that it uses to strike the ground with incredible force. And it doesn't seem to care who it hits with that giant piston, it's obviously taking out some of its own guys too, and it's not just hovering over the Republic clone troopers. It just puts this crater in the planet and creates this huge wave of, of sand that flies in all directions. Yeah, I guess when you have something that big, you can't really try to spare your own side. It's just used to take out anything in its path, and including more expendable droids. And we see this machine stomp the ground several times. And what I thought was kind of weird was that Mace Windu was prepared for the, the first one, and he handled it very well and leapt over the uh, wave of sand that followed. But he got caught off guard by the second one, and it caused him to lose his lightsaber and get tumbled around a bit and become disoriented for a moment. Yeah, kind of out of character for someone that was so in control to start. But I'm glad he does lose his lightsaber, because now here we just get this amazing piece of animation. There's no dialogue, this is all sound effects and action. And we see Mace use his force powers to blow droids back, and then at one point he holds his palm out to explode droids from the inside out, and then use the shrapnel from these defeated droids on one side uh, as projectiles to destroy droids on the other side. It's just so beautifully done. This is how force powers are supposed to look. Yeah, and I thought it was kind of funny when he's just, like, pummeling droids with his fist. <laughs> and I guess this giant ship up above takes some time to recharge, as you would imagine. This thing weighs probably millions of tons. So it's, it's trying to recharge, and the piston then strikes for a third time. And now this time, while being blown around, Mace somehow sees his lightsaber twinkling in the sunlight and he retrieves it. Mace then really uses his force powers here where he sprints extremely fast, jumps up to the side of the ship, and here he carves his way in, slices everything on the way out, 
destroys the cockpit, flies out to the overlook where that boy Paxi has been watching the whole time, as the ship now just crashes and explodes. Now here, Paxi Silo smiles, and he's this little boy offering him a drink from his canteen. And Mace smiles, drinks from it, he hands it back to Paxi, who looks at it, and I guess he's honored that he used it, really excited. And the chapter ends as we see Mace jump back down into the battle. And uh, in the director's commentary, Tartakovsky mentioned that they modeled this sequence after the famous Mean Joe Green Coca-Cola commercial. Do you remember that, Paul? I remember seeing it in um, shows that feature popular commercials. Yeah, it's like it's an iconic commercial. I, I think it aired during a Super Bowl. It's like one of the most famous ones where, you know, the, the kid gives Mean Joe Green his Coke and he drinks from it, and as he walks away, hey, kid, and he throws him a, his towel, you know. Yeah. So that's that's what we get. And it started off as a joke, but then they said, you know, we should really do something like this here. Because they didn't really have a good ending to this scene, and uh, that really showed Mace Windu as a hero, and that's how the, the Jedis are regarded by some. So in Chapter 14, we now start on the snowy planet of Ilum. And there's this sacred Jedi temple that's built into the side of a mountain. And we see the Jedi Luminara Anduli instruct her Padawan Baris Ofi on the construction of the lightsaber. And here we see it's actually this colored crystal that is the core of the lightsaber handle. And all around them, we see these glowing blue, green, and purple crystals naturally incurring in the cave walls around them. And I think this is the first time we ever see how lightsabers are created, right? Yeah, now, um, in Return of the Jedi, one of the deleted scenes actually showed Luke, I believe, constructing his new lightsaber in a cave on Tatooine. But, of course, it was deleted. It was not part of the final cut for the theatrical release. But uh, that might have been the first time we see anyone working on the construction of a lightsaber. But yes, they are powered by special crystals that are only found on certain planets throughout the galaxy, and the color of the crystal determines the color of the lightsaber blade. It's interesting we finally get to see this in some form. Although I know it's uh, been spoken about quite a bit in books, especially the planet Ilum and the temple. I believe we're all from various books beforehand. Now, what was the name of instructor in this scene? Luminara. Luminara Undali. Okay, Luminara. Uh, can we talk for a minute about what Luminara is telling her disciple as she creates her lightsaber? Please. <laughs> I wrote down what she said. Uh, she said, the crystal is the heart of the blade. Like, okay, I, I understand that. <laughs> then she says, the heart is the crystal of the Jedi. Okay, okay. Little, uh little metaphor there. Sure. Then the Jedi is the crystal of the Force. Now I'm starting to get lost here because I'm like, isn't the Force more important than the Jedi? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if if she's almost, she's relating the crystal to the heart of the blade of the lightsaber. It's like the vital part of it. I wouldn't say that the Jedi is the vital part of the Force. I'd say the other way around. The Force is the vital part of the Jedi. Yeah, and that's then, true. And then the final line is the Force is the blade of the heart. 
just like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's so lost. I mean, I thought, I thought that line about fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate. I thought that was interesting, but this goes above and beyond that. Yeah, the only thing I can think is like the the crystal is like the the way that the power is projected. So in that sense, the the Jedi are the way that the Force, like they're the instruments from which the Force can be utilized. But yeah, that's a little convoluted. The Force is the blade of the heart. <laughs> <laughs> Nice poetry, but yeah. It's like Lucas uh, took these four words and he's like, how many different ways can I interchange them? <laughs> Blade, crystal, heart, Jedi. <laughs> the Jedi is the crystal of the blade. <laughs> the blade is the force of the Jedi. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I just kind of was amused by, by that whole uh, dialogue there. That is funny, yeah. So these two, they, they immediately sense something is wrong. All around them are these chameleon droids, they're called, because they can cloak themselves and blend in with their surroundings. And what they're doing is putting little explosive devices all around them. The droids reveal themselves, and the two Jedi are trying to fight them off as best as they can, but it's not enough. Everything explodes around them, and they are trapped under rubble and crystal shards. But they're safe because they're holding these boulders at bay with their meditative force powers. Yes, and it's, uh, and then we go to an outside scene of the temple, and we see you know some dust and smoke kind of puff out of the door, and it made me wonder like, are they okay, or was that from the final collapse and it falling and crushing them? Oh yeah, I didn't even think of that. Well, we de definitely know that the temple is destroyed, or mostly destroyed at this point. In Chapter 15, we see Padme's reflective Naboo starship that we saw quite a bit in Episode 1. And inside, Yoda senses that something's wrong at this temple, and instructs Padme that they must change course to the other side of the system, to this planet Ilum, to rescue these Jedis that are in danger. And uh, the captain of Senator Padme Amidala's starship is Captain Typho, and he adamantly refuses, but immediately changes mind thanks to Yoda's Jedi mind trick. Yeah, that was kind of funny, because I don't know if we've ever really seen Yoda use a Jedi mind trick. We've, of course, seen Obi-Wan use it and uh, Qui-Gon, but it was humorous because Yoda has that unique way of speaking where everything's a little bit backwards. Yeah. So, uh, as he was saying things, and uh, the captain was repeating him. He was saying the same thing in a, in a kind of reversed and weird way. humorous. <laughs> so Padme is happy to oblige, and they land on Ilum. And sensing some danger, Yoda tells Padme to stay behind. And he then goes ahead and he's fighting more of these chameleon droids and takes them all out eventually with this force-powered avalanche. And in the temple, Yoda gets to work moving giant boulders with his mind. In chapter 16, later, feeling that Yoda has taken much too long, Padme feels compelled to go in after him, and she waits for Typho to go back into the ship, and Padme goes into this heavy snowfall. I mean, this is a, a snowy planet in a blizzard-like atmosphere, and she decides to go in after Yoda, bringing C-3PO and R2-D2 along with her. Yeah, I thought it was 
Padme thought that she could be of some help to Yoda, <laughs> most powerful Jedi Master, as she uh, at first, you know, refused to let him go alone, and then he had to assure her that if he needed help, he would call for her assistance to get her to stay behind. Yeah, and she does encounter more of these chameleon droids along the way, and doesn't even really make it to the temple, which is fine. Yeah, at one part she gets pinned down by these droids, and in order to distract them so she can uh, sneak up behind them and take them out, she uh, throws her cloak out into the snow and then asks C-3PO to retrieve it for her, using him as bait. And I'm like thinking, man, she and Anakin are a perfect match because they're both jerks to C-3PO. <laughs> yeah, really. Anything that would Oh, and one note about C-3PO here as we see him animated in these in this series. Uh, Tartakovsky mentioned that if you notice, C-3PO has pupils in his eyes, and we know from the movies that he does not. And this is kind of a nod to the Nelvana animation style, uh, the droids a cartoon series from, I think, like 1983, and as well as the Boba Fett cartoon from the holiday special. Those all had pupils in C-3PO's eyes. Makes him a little cartoony, but he wanted to get that look to him. Okay, I didn't really notice that, but I did notice that it seemed like C-3PO was more silvery than gold in these cartoons. Yeah, and that might be a deliberate color choice, because one beautiful thing about this Clone Wars series is the muted color palette. When I think of Clone Wars, I immediately think of, like, blue-gray light purple, light green, very stylized look along with a very well thought out color palette. And that may just be another color choice is to tone down the overwhelming yellow of C-3PO. Plus he's reflective. So in this white landscape, maybe he comes off a little grayer than normal. I don't know. So Padme doesn't even get to the temple. Sensing more objects ahead, R2-D2 gets her attention, but instead of more droids, it's Yoda with the two Jedis, and uh, they're unharmed. So it was a successful rescue mission, and Yoda tells Padme he's troubled because the temple's nearly destroyed. Its location has been revealed, but he does not know who revealed it. That question lingers for about half a second because R2-D2 plugs into one of the broken droids and projects a message that was given to it from Count Dooku explaining where the temple is. So now Yoda at this point knows that Dooku is the one that had betrayed the Jedi. In chapter 17, we now cut back to Anakin. He's come out of hyperspace and he's still pursuing Ventress this whole time. And he tracks her all the way to Yavin 4. And now he gets out, proceeds on foot, and he leaves his R4 unit back on the ship. And like Paul said, he doesn't bring R2-D2, he brings this R4 unit. It's kind of a similar looking droid, but with a red dome, whereas R2-D2 would have blue. Yeah, and then the uh, clone trooper ship lands. They locate Anakin, and Anakin at first seems a little peeved that uh, Obi-Wan didn't trust him to handle the situation alone, but then he figures he'll use the clone troopers since they're there and tells them to fan out into the uh, forest and also some should stay behind to guard the ships. Yes, and as they follow Anakin's orders, they are being swept away one by one, just this invisible force that's pulling them away and, you know, we pretty much figure out what's happening. 
this is uh, Asajj Ventress uh, attacking this this party of soldiers. I don't know about you, Scott, but this was probably one of my most favorite parts of seasons one and two. I was almost chuckling to myself as I watched these helpless clone troopers just getting bashed up against trees over and over <laughs> again by <laughs> some unknown enemy. Yeah, one of them gets dragged across the dirt, leaves this huge trail behind him. It was pretty humorous. How unable to uh, to fight Ventress they were. I mean, she, she didn't even show up, obviously. She was just doing all this from the cover of the forest. Yeah, until finally there's one trooper remaining, and uh, Anakin calls out to him, but that doesn't last long because Anakin's ship and that carrier ship both explode, you know, killing the remaining trooper and Anakin's R4 unit. We see this scorched, cracked dome kind of slide over and land at Anakin's feet. And from the middle of this burning wreckage, finally is Asajj Ventress who meets Anakin face-to-face for the first time. In Chapter 18, this is where we get Anakin and Ventress. They have this very well-choreographed lightsaber duel. They start off on the ground, they move up to the treetops, and they end up at the Masasi Temples of Yavin 4. So, really beautiful choreography all throughout this. Yeah, I liked when it uh, started raining halfway through the battle, and the raindrops hitting the lightsaber blades was causing some steam to flow from the blades. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I had that in my notes, too. I really liked the, the look of that. It shows you that this series is very well thought out. The characters aren't just plopped into the environment. They are very much a part of it. Yeah, and also at different points in the battle, you see the glow of the different color blades on the faces of Anakin and Ventress, and I thought that was neat too. Yeah, that's as we now go into Chapter 19. I liked here a little bit of symbolism because we see Anakin appears only blue from his lightsaber, Ventress appears only red from hers, and so you get the good versus evil, the the light versus the dark side, and this fighting continues, and they ultimately end up at the very top of this tall temple structure, a lot of steps going up to it, and they're underneath the glowing red light of the planet Yavin, which we know from the movies is this red gas giant, and it appears very large in the skies of Yavin 4. And some more symbolism here is Anakin's, like, really letting the dark side take a hold of him. Because he's illuminated by Yavin, he also appears red instead of blue. So really well thought out here as we we see him go from blue to red, just like she is red. And he loses his lightsaber, takes one of Ventress's, and he's angrily fighting her all the way to the edge of this tall temple. Yeah, it just seems like uh, Anakin is probably frustrated at this point. We know he thinks very highly of himself and his skills with the Force. Um, It's probably frustrating that it's taken this long to fight her and he still hasn't won. He gets one of her lightsabers and gets her at the edge of this temple, and she's down on the ground guarding herself with her lightsaber, and he's just, like, wailing away on it, and it almost reminded me of Return of the Jedi, when Luke got so angry after Vader threatened Leia, and Vader was on the ground guarding himself, and Luke was just bashing away at his sword. Yeah, this is the very same motion, and that, that again, was deliberate. A lot of thought put into these sequences. And, and they actually give us some, I don't know if I'd say flashbacks, but some quick glimpses of different individuals, Yoda and Obi-Wan, that are, like, flashing in Anakin's mind 
Yeah, and in Qui-Gon Jinn, too, if you pause it. It's the only... I wondered. Yeah, the only scene I think we get of Qui-Gon. And uh, Tartakovsky mentioned the, in the director's commentary that this is these Jedi Masters now sensing the dark side getting more of a hold of Anakin's psyche. Okay. Kind of similar to when he uh, let the dark side take hold of him uh, when he killed all the sand people after his mother died. And that was sensed by Obi-Wan and Yoda. And I believe you even hear Qui-Gon's voice yelling no when he starts to do that. No, I didn't know that. That's cool. So eventually the ledge that Ventress is on gives way and she plummets down to her presumed death as Anakin lets out this, you know, I guess primal scream. <laughs> no! Yeah, I thought that was kind of uh, a <laughs> funny way for it to end. And, and I don't think he's dead. Um, no, she's not. With all the jumping around and stuff that they're able to do with the Force, it's like she could have easily survived that fall. And in Chapter 1, we see Obi-Wan and... Anakin leap out of a trooper ship and land, you know, effortlessly on the ground and start attacking droids. So I was definitely looking at that and saying, she'll be back. Yeah, there's there's no ACL tears for Siths or Jedis, that's for sure. <laughs> and we know Ventress isn't dead because she does appear in later series as well, those other Clone Wars cartoons. Okay, I haven't seen any of those yet. So now we finish with chapter 20. We cut back to the planet Munalist, where a group of battle droids are fighting Republic forces, including this werewolf-looking Jedi. I wasn't able to find his name. Another different-looking character. Yeah, I think uh, we see one of his race in the uh, Mos Eisley Cantina in A New Hope. I forget. The f they, they actually call him a wolfman. Um, I forget the first part of that name, though. It starts with S for the name of his race. So they get the news from Obi-Wan that the Banking Clan has surrendered, they're victorious, and they all begin to celebrate. And the Banking Clan, along with other Trade Federation officials, are being marched away into Republic ships, and the battle is now over. Then a clone commander tells Obi-Wan that a ship matching that rogue ship that Anakin was pursuing is now approaching, and Obi-Wan can sense that there's nothing wrong because he obviously knows Anakin is the one piloting it. So here Anakin apologizes to Obi-Wan, telling him, you know, you were right, it was a trap laid out for me by the Sith. And Obi-Wan is very troubled that the Sith are taking an interest in Anakin. So we see already there are these signs that should have been evident. But while he was in the middle of reprimanding him, they get this distress signal from Master Barak a Jedi whose forces are being defeated on the planet Harpori. And here he warns them of a new droid general that is unstoppable. So we immediately cut to the planet Harpori, where swarms of these super battle droids are closing in on a downed Republic ship. Uh, there's downed ships everywhere. And we see this tall, white cape droid in the middle of them, and he gives orders to stop, and they all do. And we see this small band of six Jedis they flee to safety in some nearby wreckage. And just to give you a rundown of this group, the, these Jedis are Kiati Mundi. He's that conehead-looking guy with the white mustache and ponytail. And uh, he was on the Jedi Council in Phantom Menace. There's Shakti. She's the pink-skinned lady with those blue and white striped tendrils coming from her head. She was in the Jedi Council, I believe, in Attack of the Clones, and she was in Revenge of the Sith, too. 
There's uh, Ayla Sakura. She's a blue Twilight girl that was also in Attack of the Clones. Kakrook, who is that hairy, warthog-looking Jedi. Uh, Tarsir. He's another conehead-looking man with uh, his head wrapped up. I believe he's the Padawan of Kiati Mundi. And another funny guy that looks suspiciously like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Did you notice that? I have that in my notes. I was like, when did Shaggy become a Jedi? <laughs> and do you know what his name is? I do not. Shaagi. <laughs> so that is no coincidence. They threw that in there. It's spelled S-H-A apostrophe A-G-I. Shaagi. Well, at least his voice doesn't sound like Shaggy. <laughs> Tartakovsky mentions in the commentary they were gonna give him Shaggy's voice, but he said, no, that's that's just taking it one step too far. We don't hear him say anything like, zoinks, or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, fortunately not. It's, it would have definitely taken us out of the action to have that. But it's funny, this Shaggy, he's the first one to go. These Jedi are all in the wreckage of a, looks like a Republic cruiser. Yeah. And uh, General Grievous is slowly coming upon their location. They can hear his footsteps, his mechanical workings as he gets closer and closer. They're all trying to stay calm and prepare to fight him. And Shayagi just can't take it anymore. <laughs> he runs out of the ship and General Grievous like jumps on him and just squashes him, I guess. Yeah, kills him. But, just disappears under him. And, you know, I'm watching this, and what it, I'm like, oh, this scene reminds me of something, some other animated movie I've seen in the past. And I finally figured it out. It reminds me of a scene from Bambi. <laughs> I don't know how long ago you, you last saw Bambi. Oh, forever ago. There's, there's a scene at the end where there's, like, these three or four pheasants. They're, they're like women's voices you know uh-huh. and they're pheasants and they're they're hiding from the hunter in the tall grass and they're all trying to stay quiet and stay calm and there's this one that's like he's getting closer he's gonna find us i can't take it anymore and she just like starts flying away and she gets killed by the hunter <laughs> <laughs> i was like yep that's shayagi right there wow yeah, it's like, it's kind of cool. It's this great moment of tension because you, you hear this ominous mechanical sound as he stomps closer. Kiari Mundi, he's like the oldest, it seems, uh, the, the most experienced of these Jedi, and he's just telling them, steady, steady, you know, stay calm. And Shiagi's just that guy. He's like, he has big eyes, you know, he's looking around, he's freaking out. He's this, you know, the game over, man, type character. <laughs> Too bad no one had a Scooby snack to calm him down. <laughs> And what did they see? What did the Jedi Council see in Shiagi in the first place? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I want to instruct this guy. He's really cool, calm, and collected. His family must have connections. Yeah. His family donated a wing to the Jedi Temple. <laughs> they uh, they stocked the Jedi Library. So now we get the five remaining Jedi, and they, they fight in a circle, and Grievous jumps in the middle. And this is our first real good look at him. And uh, very insect-like, mechanical, uh, very well animated. I would say he's more well animated here than when we see him in episode three, the CGI version of him. <laughs> this is my favorite adaptation of this character. 
and we really get a, a sense of what he can do. He's spinning in the middle of them, holding a lightsaber in, in each of his four arms incredibly fast. And he can move around like a spider, he can fight with his feet, he has complete control over all of his limbs, and the Jedis just cannot keep up. Like I said with other chapters, great, great animation here. My friend just watched these a couple days ago, and he mentioned that he liked General Grievous in it, and just a, a better bad guy and a lot scarier in these cartoons than he's portrayed in episode three, where he's like coughing and is having all sorts of problems. But uh, <laughs> I, I still think it's a little ridiculous that, you know, five or at least four really well-trained Jedi are no match for him. You know, I don't think Grievous has any power over the Force. It's just, you know, sheer speed. Yeah. But you'd think that they would be able to be some match for him. I mean, Obi-Wan fights him single-handedly in Episode 3. Oh, that's such a weak fight, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was a little pitiful that they couldn't do anything against him. And... I also had in my notes that someone should tell that hairy Jedi that he should try fighting with his eyes open. Because <laughs> <laughs> it looks like his eyes are closed all the time. Well, as as Luke showed us, you know, with the training helmet, you don't always need your eyes to fight. Your eyes can deceive you. <laughs> <laughs> Jedi scum. <laughs> I actually have a General Grievous mask that I got from uh, Toys R Us when they were having a clearance sale. It was like 2 or $3, and I couldn't pass it up. <laughs> you press a button on it, and it has several of his uh, catchphrases. At one point here, too, they push into his face, and we see he has like a reptilian eye. And there'll be more about that in the movie that will follow this series. We see that he's not just a droid. There are organic elements to him. But they don't give us much of his backstory at all. Just this incredibly powerful person shrouded in mystery yeah because of my uh strong dislike for the prequels i never really did much research on any of the characters or anything in them but i've always been a little curious about general grievous like these organic parts of him who are they from i actually hoped when i first saw episode three that they were the remnants of darth maul that parts of Darth Maul had survived being diced up and falling down that huge pit yeah. on Naboo, but I believe that is not the case, because actually Darth Maul does make a return appearance in the other Clone Wars series, the 3D animated one. Yes, he does. And I had heard that fan theory before, and yeah, that would have been good, but Lucas wrote these, so what are you going to do? <laughs> So the fight continues, the Jedis are getting killed off one by one. All that's left is Kiati Mundi and Shakti. And I believe they both appear in the third movie, so we know they don't die. Uh, Shakti is actually pushed aside, and Kiati Mundi and Grievous are about to strike each other. They, they get into these poses and square off, and we immediately jump cut to Coruscant. And we see a very troubled Yoda, and he's staring outside his window, and there's like a storm on the horizon. And uh, that is uh, an apt metaphor, as dark, ominous music begins to play, and Yoda finishes Season 2 with the voiceover, Darker the coming storm grows, I fear. The dark cloud of the Sith shrouds us all. 
And that is the end of Volume 1. Now, Paul, I have to ask you, what, what are your thoughts now upon revisiting this series? I enjoyed it. You know, it was, uh, it was easy to get through the 70 minutes. You know, it kept me engaged. I pointed out, you know, some of the flaws that I thought there were in it or some of the weird things that stood out to me. But overall, you know, I really enjoyed watching it. It had been probably about nine years, I think, since I last saw it. I remember uh, staying over a friend's house and they had it on DVD and I had caught uh, an episode here or there on Cartoon Network, but uh, that was the first time I got to see it all from beginning to end. And so now after revisiting it, you know, I I enjoyed it. I was entertained. Yeah, I always loved these. I, I remember when they first were announced that they were going to be on Cartoon Network, uh, I, I got my VCR tape all set and I was surprised to see that it only lasted for three minutes. Cartoon Network put it at their beginning of their primetime block on Fridays, and I guess I did not read my TV guide well enough and uh, was a little disappointed in the length. I, I also heard from a, another friend that when he, he heard that they were going to have a Star Wars cartoon, which, you know, now we kind of take it for granted because there's, you know, Star Wars Rebels is running now and there's all kinds of Star Wars animated stuff, but... Back then, you know, this was big news. So he had, like, his nieces and nephews over for a party. They were going to watch it. And at the end of the three minutes, you know, it ended. And they're all like, what? <laughs> they're all disappointed. <laughs> and, you know, it was one of those things. You get so into it and so engaged right away because it's so beautifully done. And then all of a sudden, come back next week for the, you know, exciting next installment of Clone Wars. It's like, oh, man. It's nice to get to watch it on DVD where seasons one and two are compiled into volume one. And you put the disc in, and it's all seamlessly cut together. You don't get the intro. There is a, There used to be an intro for every chapter when it aired. And we get Star Wars Clone Wars with a marching sound. Tartakovsky said he wanted to make it sound like a, a war broadcast. And that's what kind of like what we're getting, these snippets. But on the DVD, we only get that at the beginning. And it's seamlessly put together in a one-hour mini-movie of sorts. And uh, just so wonderfully done. I, I really love it. IGN ranked it as one of their top cartoons of all time. This actually won back-to-back -back Emmys for Best Animated Series in 2004 and 2005. So great critical acclaim as well. Wow, I didn't know that. That's pretty surprising. But I definitely look forward to uh, checking out Season 3 or uh, Volume 2. I know we're planning to do a podcast on that in the near future as well. Yes, as we, we gear up for the release of Episode 7 in December. Well, that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, how George Lucas disappointed you, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Now, Paul, do you have anything you want to plug? Sure, I'll let people know what my Twitter handle is. It's uh, at Zychewski. That is Z-A-J-C-Z-E-W-S-K-I. I'm uh, probably not going to be as active on that as the uh, baseball season winds down, but usually you can find my rants about the Red Sox and their poor play. But probably with Star Wars coming out, I'll be talking a lot about that as well. I am on Twitter as well. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can find me there. I'm also on Vine under the name MC and Friends. There I do flip page animation, little humorous cartoons. You can follow me there. 
Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. We try to be very creative with those. Also, you can tap to rate us five stars right there on our iTunes page on your mobile device. It's just one click, and uh, anything you can do to help us in that respect, we very much appreciate. And uh, some other big news for the show, we are now on Stitcher. So you can find us on the Stitcher app, and if you use Android devices, this may be the way to go for you. And if you want to recommend the show to anybody else that uses Android devices, you can do it that way. So we're, we're on Stitcher, and you can stream directly from there as well. Well, we have been Paul and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. May the Force be with you.